Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning, and you can find it on page 926 in the Pew Bibles. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving, spending time with family and friends, um, and that you took a good amount of time just to reflect on all that you had to be grateful for, all that the Lord has given for you and and provided to you. As I thought about that this week, you know, one of the things that I've been really thankful for is just the book of Acts itself. Uh, It has been so timely, week after week after week. You see, it never fails that every week I will come to God in prayer, and I will be asking Him a question. I'll have a concern, a, a thought, something that I'm just really wrestling with. And every week in that very text, God provides an answer. It has happened time and time again. One question, one concern, one thought, and God answers it that week, if Sunday, if, if not before, from the very text that I'm preaching on. And so the question that I was running into this week, early on in the week, is like, God, what do I, what do I have to do to help people to get it? I want you to get it. That's my job. Like, I'm here to help you to get it, to understand, to know truth. And whether that be uh, as a Christian to grow in maturity in Christ, to grow in a depth of God's Word and a a love for deep, deep things so that you might live according to them, or, or for someone who does not follow Christ, how they can be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and how we as as God's people, as God's disciples can help others to do that. How can we be about transforming the lives of people around us and changing the culture and changing our communities for, for the glory of God and for our soul's joy in Christ? That's what I want more than anything. And so I'm always thinking about what what screws do I need to tighten? What do I need to be doing differently? How do I need to be approaching this differently? How do I need to be communicating with this or that to help people to understand? What do I need to prioritize in order for God's word to make a greater impact in your lives and in the lives of this community and lives around the world? And you know, God answered that clearly this week. He reminded me of truth that this is what you need to focus on, and here are the various ways that people are going to respond. You see, my job and yours is to provide a faithful, consistent gospel witness, to remind people of the truth of God's Word, to help them to go deep so that they might eagerly examine and see it for themselves. But at that point, it is the responsibility of the hearer to accept it. It's the responsibility of the hearer to examine the Scriptures daily in order to take God at His Word. And this Word will inevitably turn the world upside down, either because some people will hate it and reject it and will will agitate and will stir up animosity against it, or, or they will accept it and it will eagerly transform their lives. In this passage, we're going to see ways that people can hear without truly listening, and we're going to see ways that people truly hear truly receive God's Word and the impact that that makes either way. But as the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is telling his audience, his friend Theophilus, he wants to assure him of the things that he has been taught. And that's what we're going to do this morning. That's my goal for you this morning, is to assure you of the things that we've been taught And so Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, conveys a simple and yet profound truth that we should all receive with a heartfelt thanksgiving. And that is that a faithful, consistent gospel witness may be heard but not received or received by those who hear. A consistent gospel witness may be heard but not received or received by those who hear. And so may we receive God's word with all eagerness this morning as we read Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. 
says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed." A consistent gospel witness may be heard but not received or received by those who hear. And we're just going to break that statement down into three parts this morning. You see, this passage helps us to know what it is that we need to prioritize in, in, in terms of our ministry and what we're to be devoting ourselves to. This passage identifies some ways that people can hear but not really listen to the gospel. And this passage also helps us to see what gospel transformation looks like for those who truly receive it. And so first, a consistent gospel witness. Now, in in verses 1 through 4, we see Paul keep to his consistent method for gospel proclamation. After leaving Philippi that we saw last week, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and perhaps they went on because there were no Jews there, or, or perhaps his priority was to focus on major Roman cities that had roads leading to the ends of the earth so that the gospel could advance as quickly as possible. I mean, after all, that's what Thessalonica was. Thessalonica was the most populated city in that region. It was a, a capital and a Roman seat. Either way, Paul passed through these two cities but made his way to Thessalonica where it says there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was, as was his very familiar custom by now, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and some were persuaded and joined him. But once again, a familiar pattern arises in verses 5 through 9. The Jews became jealous. They stirred things up so that they had to move on. They were forced to move out. And so in verses 10 through 12, they go to Berea. They do the same thing that we saw them do time and time again. They go to the synagogue. But this time they're well received in verse 13. But when those pesky Jews from Thessalonica, some 45 miles away, again, they heard about this, they go, they agitate, stir up the crowd so that in verses 14 and 15, Paul has to leave for Athens And Silas and Timothy stay behind to try to further establish and equip the churches, both in Berea and according to 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonica as well. Now to us, we go through that, and that just sounds like the same thing that we've heard before on repeat, right? It was just like, ditto, 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 right? Paul went here, did this. Paul went there, did this. Paul went there again and again and again. And so why why did Luke take time to tell us these accounts of 
of the, these really short accounts of what Paul did in Thessalonica and Berea. I mean, why not just fast forward on to something that is a little bit more exciting, something that's more interesting to us, like Paul's encounter in Athens that we're going to look at next time. Well, again, I just want to remind you that Luke is writing a historically accurate account to the church and more specifically to this guy named Theophilus so that he could be certain of what he had been taught. And that's our goal. I want you to be certain of the things that you have been taught. Certain both in terms of the method and in terms of the message, regardless of the mixed response to us. He's saying, in one sense, to us, be like those believing Thessalonians. Be like those Scripture-examining Bereans. Not like those jealous Jews who heard the Word but did not listen. And the repetition of these events happening time and time and time and time again ought to crystallize, ought to solidify to us what our priorities are in ministry and what that message actually should look like. What we need to be devoting ourselves to. Even in the face of hostility, we see them making disciples of all nations by engaging, evangelizing, establishing, equipping, and expanding the mission as well as clarify this message. And so we've seen Paul's familiar method. Now what about this message that he pro- proclaims here? Now notice Paul's priority was not to entertain. He's not up there telling jokes, telling lively stories. He's, he's not there primarily to meet felt needs, to help people to feel better about themselves or the situation or God, or or to provide short story-based devotionals that would just kind of cheer people up and encourage them to go out and face the day. Paul's priority was to proclaim Christ, to reason with them, not on the basis of feelings Not on personal opinions, not on the philosophies of the day, but verse 2, to reason with them from the Scriptures. He wants to engage their minds, to involve their minds in deep discourse from God's Word. That's his goal, to get you to think deeply about God's truth. And notice one has authority here. It's not popular opinion, it's not reason or intellect, it's not philosophies, it's not scholarly consensus, it's not logic, it's not personal feelings, it's not just the sentiment of the day, it is Scripture. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The God's Word has the authority from which he argued or reasoned. And so he appealed to the mind, yes, he might have found some, some starting point, some mutual starting point that they could kind of argue out from and, and build his case for Christ as he reasoned and discussed with them. But God's word, not man, was the final court of appeals. That's where it is. Not, not what you think, not what your teachers tell you, not what your parents tell you, not, not what culture tells you, not what all of those commentaries might tell you, but what God's Word tells you. And so Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And friends, part of that reasoning from the Scriptures was simply to explain the Scriptures themselves. And so if you've ever wondered why we take such a long time and we preach such long sermons through books of the Bible, this is exactly why. This is why I preach the way I do. So that you can understand the Scriptures. We're reasoning from the Scriptures. Central to our gospel witness is a consistent and continual faithful exposition of God's Word. We are opening and we are unpacking. We are explaining and interpreting so that we can all rightly understand and apply God's authoritative Word to our lives. I hope you understand I don't, I don't speak for an hour when I get up here on Sundays so that you can know my opinion on the matter. 
I preach so that you can know God's word. That's what I want for you. And not only did Paul explain, he also proved from Scripture. Now, he's not proof texting here as if to take one or two passages out of context and apply them to his own ideas or opinions. So, for example, a popular one, God is love, right? God is love, and because God is love, God is not going to hold his wrath against sinners forever. He's not going to judge them based upon their hatred, their enmity towards him. Instead, what we're going to see is that love wins in the end. No, this is the idea, this, this proving from the Scriptures is the idea of placing Scripture alongside Scripture, alongside Scripture, so that Scripture interprets itself. It's not pulling that text out and say, this is what I want to hold to, forget all that other stuff, but no, when I look at all the Scriptures laid out, this is what it says. This is what it's telling us. That is what has authority. That is truth. That's what I'm going to believe. And you know what happens when you put Scripture side by side by side and you allow Scripture to interpret itself? It tells us that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, which is what Paul was arguing from, but certainly throughout the New Testament as well, in thousands and thousands of different ways, Scripture tells the same story of how this one true and holy living God created all there is to know Him and to find their joy and their satisfaction in His glory. That we were made to live for Him. But... In our frailty, in our weakness, in our pride and ignorance, we rebelled against God. We all sin because in our hearts, we want to live as if this is my world and I'm God. I'm the authority here. I'm the one in charge. And no matter what we've tried, whether that be like conquest through kingdoms, whether that be religious efforts and and sacrifices and, and honoring God through lip service, or whether that be through trying to be a good moral person, what Scripture has revealed to us time and time again is that we cannot save ourselves. That there is nothing that you can do for yourself to save yourself. There's no amount of of worship, there's no amount of religious activity, there's no amount of being good that can change your own nature or pay for your own sin. And so, from way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, throughout the Old, uh, Old Testament and on through the New Testament, over and over again, God tells us that He must save us. That he must deliver. How it was necessary for the Christ to come. Not as some warring conqueror. Not as some political king. But as a perfect sacrifice. To do what we could not. To live a life that we can never live. And to lay down that life by dying on a cross for sin. And that this Christ, this king over all. Humbled himself to the point not only of death humiliating, suffering death on a cross, and he rose again three days later so that we could know for sure that he is indeed the Son of God, that his sacrifice did truly pay for the consequence of sin, that his death had overcome the power and penalty of sin and death for anyone who believes in him, and that all who repent of their sin and believe in Christ will be raised to live with him forever in glory as God's people. That's the story that Scripture tells us over and over and over again, that we were created and in Christ recreated to live the lives that we were made to live, only better now because they have been perfected in Jesus Christ. And every single person needs to know that. There's not a person here that doesn't need to know that. No matter how mature in Christ you consider yourself to be. And this is a solid, unbending message that has to be told. It is necessary 
to receive it all, not just parts of it. Not just those parts that our culture says, you know, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you know, Jesus said you're to be a nice person. Yeah, we want nice people in the world. But to accept the gospel as a whole. If we accept the gospel as a whole, if we proclaim the gospel as a whole, it doesn't leave people with options. You can entertain people and leave them with options. You can talk generally about God and leave people with options. You can go out and you can do nice things for people and leave people with options. You can minimize the gravity of sin and you can magnify the feelings, the needs, and the concessions of man and leave people with options. That's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't leave people with options and that's why people hate it. The gospel tells us that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die. And if it was necessary, according to the scriptures, that the Christ would suffer and die, then it is necessary for us to preach the whole gospel. And the whole gospel means that we must call them to have one king and one Lord over their life. And guess what? It's not them. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, this is the Christ. This is your salvation. This is your hope. This is your life. This is the way. This is the truth. He is the king. And there are two and only two ways to live. See, either Christ is king, and this is his world, and we can repent and believe and be citizens of his kingdom under his rule and his blessing, or someone or something else is king in your life and you are still condemned in your sin. You are still living under the domain of darkness and are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's no third way. There's no, there's no middle ground here. There's no way that I can kind of take from this but still take from this and still be okay. Paul and all who belong to Christ as citizens of God's kingdom are now emissaries of the king, proclaiming the same authoritative message in accordance with the scriptures that it is necessary for you to believe that Jesus suffered and rose from the dead in order to be Lord and Savior of your life. This is a vital message. This is a necessary message message we make we give in the power of the holy spirit to the ends of the earth so that by god's grace he might save for himself a people of his own possession from every tongue and every tribe and every people and every language and those who are or will be saved according to verse 4 are persuaded, and they join the church. They're persuaded. Not mostly convinced, fully persuaded. Not mostly connected, kind of around God's people, but they joined the church. They don't just warm to it, but still remain convinced of their own opinions. They don't just remain outside, yet fully convinced that all I need is just me and Jesus. Now again, according to the Greek here, it says they attached themselves to Paul and Silas. They attached themselves to the church. And so our goal in ministry is to fully persuade from Scripture so that they fully join in as a fully committed follower of Christ. And again, that is consistent with what we've seen throughout the book of Acts over and over and over again. There's no third way. Are you looking for a third way? Boy, how can I, how can I have Jesus have this too? Now there might be, when we think about ministry, there might be all sorts of good things that we can do. There may be all sorts of nice and uplifting things that we can say, and and quite honestly, we probably should say them. But this is what is necessary for us to have a consistent gospel witness. This is what it looks like. 
actively making disciples of all nations, reasoning, explaining, and proving the necessity of Christ from the Scriptures, and to call others to their complete confidence in God's unerring revelation in Christ, and to join in the church in following Him both now and forevermore. This is what we must have in order to maintain a faithful and consistent gospel witness. It's not superficiality. It's going deep. It's not about preferences, personalities, or programs, or projects that can come and go. It's about this. These things are a must if we are to be faithful to the gospel. These are the screws that we have to be tightening. And so this is our method and this is our message as consistent gospel witnesses. But friends, just because we are faithful with the gospel, it doesn't mean that people will like it. And so second, a consistent gospel message, gospel witness may be heard but not received. You can go deep You can reason from Scripture all day long, week after week. You can explain, you can prove, you can persuade of the necessity of Christ, and people can hear the words you say. They might even be able to repeat them back to you. But they don't truly listen. This is what we're running into with this guy who's rejecting the doctrine of the Word of God. And we're... No matter how much we explain, no matter how much we prove, no matter how much we proclaim from Scripture, he just won't have it. He's not open to reason. He's he's just holding to his own personal prejudices regarding Scripture, and he's looking for any excuse not to believe what Scripture says of itself. And you will encounter that too. You will encounter that not just by those outside the church, but even those within the church. And it's heartbreaking. Your consistent, faithful gospel witness may actually fall along the path or along the rocks or along the thorns and it doesn't bear fruit. You may be proclaiming the word of God to those who have ears but do not hear and eyes but do not see. And it's discouraging. But it's nothing new. For all of Paul's efforts, some refuse to receive And there were three basic reasons for that that we see in this text. You could probably identify more, but there's three that I see coming out of this text. Three ways that people hear but do not listen. First, some people just aren't open to reason. Paul goes to the synagogue repeatedly to reason, to explain, to prove and proclaim. And these people just won't have it. They're not going to listen. Some of the Jews, according to verse 5, became jealous. Now, Now, maybe they're jealous for their religious tradition. No, this is what we have always believed. This is what we have always taught. This is the way we have always practiced that, and we're not going to change. Or maybe they were, they were jealous for their position before the Lord. No, we, the Jews, we're the people of God. We've been given the oracles and the covenants and the worship. That's ours, not, not for these, these Gentiles over here. So we're not going to be open to hearing any message that would include them. Or or maybe they were just jealous of Paul. Because let's face it, I mean, they'd been teaching, they had been reasoning, they had been seeking to prove from Scripture. And, you know, people are just kind of like, ah, whatever. Here Paul comes in, he's suddenly teaching, and he's taking their sacred Scriptures and coming to different conclusions, and people are following him. People from all walks of life, Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, young and old, it doesn't matter, they're following him. And so they were jealous, and their jealousy blinded them to the truth. They were not open to reason. But friends, neither were these wicked men of the rabble. It's kind of a funny phrase, wicked men of the rabble. These were ungodly men who were spending all their time out in the marketplace. Basically, they are idle and lazy people, just kind of sitting around out there doing their own thing. They're not particularly godly. Obviously, they're not there in the synagogues reasoning from Scripture back and forth. And so these men are easily provoked by these jealous Jews to form a mob against Paul and company. They've got nothing better to do. 
than to set the city in an uproar. But friends, they are not open to reason either because they're not very reasonable to begin with. They're not there reasoning. They're not there seeking to to submit themselves to God's word. They're not well-informed. They're not studied men. And this is a point of application that's important for us to get. Look, you, you know, you, if you don't know Scripture, you're not going to be persuaded when someone reasons, explains, and proves from Scripture. You're just not going to see it. If you try to be ignorant, remain in ignorance of God's Word, you're just not going to know. You're just going to go with whatever sounds good to you, with whatever tickles your itching ears. And for them, they weren't doing anything, but a violent mob sounds a whole lot more fun than a reasonable discussion in the synagogues. And friends, we've seen this plenty in our culture, haven't we? We think about people that just like, man, they've got their own opinions, they're formed, they're not well-informed opinions, but they're, they hold to them tightly, and they will get violent, either in riots or through their rants on social media, because this is what I believe, and I don't really care what you think. They're not open to reason. No, reasonableness requires diligence. It takes effort. It takes hard work. But if you make no effort to study God's word, then there's no amount of reasoning from it that will truly convince you. You'll just go with whatever sounds or feels good. Friends, I'm not here so that you can take my word for it. I'm here so that you can take God's word for it. That's what I want for you. But there's another group in verses 6 through 9 that is not open to reason either, and that's these city authorities. Their job was not to discern truth from error here. Their job was just to bring peace and order to this city as quickly and as efficiently as possible. They really didn't care what they believed, but they did care that, they, that by the fact that this commotion was taking place, they were disturbed by it. But just so long as Jason pays his money to you know, bail himself out of prison, just go your way and just keep quiet and everything's fine. These are the kind of people that are just so busy. That they don't take time. They're not open to reason because they don't take time to be open to reason. They just go about their business and they don't really care. They have greater priorities. The the cares of this world, things like doing their jobs or having quiet, peaceable lives, those are more important to them than being open to consider some essential truth that may cause division. We can be so busy, and we can do so many things that we are not really open to matters. We're not really concerned about obeying God's truth in that moment. And friends, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how much you've been published. You can still, you can be the smartest man alive and still not be open to reason. You can be blinded by jealousy, by ignorance in that particular area, by idleness or by busyness. Your pride might be your biggest obstacle to reasonableness towards God. You you say you're open-minded, you want to be open-minded, but you're not really open to God because you won't truly investigate the claims of Scripture or you won't settle on any conviction even though it's been clearly explained and proven in God's Word because you don't like it, because you don't want it. Because it doesn't appeal to your greater authority. You don't mind seeking just as long as you don't have to find. You don't mind the journey just as long as you don't have to arrive. And there are many, both within and outside the church, that go through life without truly being open to reason. But a second reason why some might hear and not receive is because they are full of personal prejudices. We can see the heart of these men, clearly, who, who were jealous of Paul and they organized a mob basically to lynch him. But when they couldn't find Paul and company, what did they do? They grabbed Jason and some of the other brothers because, look, Jason had received them. So clearly he's just as guilty as, as Paul and these other guys are. 
Their prejudice clouded their judgment and they dragged him before the city authorities and accused him of things that he had not done. They were hypercritical even of Jason because of their bias and their bigotry against Paul. This ought to sound familiar to us as well. They accused him of things that were not true. These men have turned the world upside down. And they've also come here. They're going to do the same thing here. Now, to us, that sounds really awesome, right? Like, man, yeah, we're going to go out there, and as we preach the gospel, the world's going to turn upside down. But that's not what they meant. What happens when you take an open container of bleach and you dump it upside down? It ruins just about everything it touches. That's the way they saw Christianity. Ruining our way of life. It's ruining our tradition, ruining our beliefs, our practices, ruining our culture, ruining our economics. It's ruining all that we hold dear. Friends, allegiance to Christ changes all of that. They go on with the second accusation. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another King Jesus. Well, friends, at least they get the implication, right? If Jesus is king, then no one or nothing else could be. And these men were so prejudiced against the gospel that according to verse 13, they followed Paul to Berea, a two days journey from Thessalonica in order to agitate and stir up the crowd there. Friends, we see this kind of thing on the political front. People travel large distances to agitate and stir up crowds for rioting, but but fortunately, there's, there's enough indifference religiously that we don't see that very often. So there's another thing that I got to be thankful for this week, right? You know, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for good health and God's provision for me. And I'm thankful that, that we don't have these, these agitators that come around and stir things up. But friends, we need to realize that our own prejudices can blind us to the truth. This is the case for both Christians and non-Christians. There are some that might be so skeptical. Maybe they've been so hurt by Christians that they won't give the gospel a time of day. The idea of forgiving that hurt and joining with the church, it's impossible. But closer to home, you can be so biased by your own opinions or by your own experiences that you are unwilling to listen to anyone else. Not, not a pastor, not another Christian. It is so easy for us to be prejudiced by our own ideas, by our own feelings, by our own thoughts, by our own beliefs, by our own desires, by our own values, that we close our ears to hearing the truth of God's Word. Now, I'm not about to give that up, whatever that is, for the sake of Christ. And if that's true for someone who professes Christ, it's every bit as much true for the one who refuses to. Friends, what prejudices you against the gospel? What is it that's, fully, that's, that's preventing you from fully taking God at His word? In a third way, these people heard but would not listen was that they were looking for any excuse not to believe. Anything at all. Doesn't matter what it is, right? For for them, it's like, oh, these people are turning the world upside down, right? They're, They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Those statements weren't even true, but they were excuses for them not to believe. G.K. Chesterton once said, those who charged Christians with burning down Rome with firebrands were slanderers. But they were at what at least far nearer to the nature of Christianity than those among the moderns who tell us that Christians were a sort of ethical society being martyred in a languid fashion for telling men that they had a duty to their neighbors and only mildly disliked because they were meek and mild. That's not what's happening here. People were getting upset. They were forming mobs. They were railing against Paul and the gospel because they were looking for any excuse not to believe that Jesus is Lord and that all glory belongs to him. 
What are your excuses not to believe? We all have them. You can go through life and you can try to hide. You can try to avoid, not bring it up, kind of keep it under the covers. You can give one excuse for another as to why Christ is not Lord over your life. You can try to turn it on other people and blame them for why that's not the case. You could try to pull the wool over other people's eyes, but you will have no excuse before God. No excuse. He knows every thought and intention of your heart perfectly. You stand naked and bare before him. If you're part of the church, you have heard the word of God thousands and thousands of times. You've heard it over and over and over again. You can't claim ignorance for what you know that God wants you to do. You've heard it time and time again. So the question becomes, when are you going to respond? When are you going to take God at his word? When are you going to really open yourself up to reason? When are you going to lay aside all of the preconceived desires or notions? When are you going to stop making excuses? It's not enough for us just to hear. We must truly receive. Which is why this text gives us point number three. That a consistent gospel witness may be heard but not received. Third, or received by those who hear. Now again, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and God is saying to us, these things that you have been taught from God's word are true, and so receive them for what they are. Be certain in these things. Don't be like those who hear, but do not receive. Receive God's word for what it is, because you have been given ears to hear. And we see the transforming effect that the word of God had on some of these Thessalonians in verse 4. And it says, and some of them, that's some of the, the Jews from Thessalonica, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so here you have both Jew and Greek poor and rich, male and female, were convinced from Scripture that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they placed their trust in Him for their salvation. They were humble enough, regardless of their background, to take God at His word, no matter who they were. I'm a leading man of a city. Didn't matter. I'm just a poor man. Doesn't matter. I'm a Jew. Doesn't matter. I'm a Greek. Doesn't matter. They took Him at His word. They denied themselves, took up their crosses, and followed Christ by faith. Paul would say of them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. And remember, he was only there a very short amount of time. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it actually is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Friends, is that how you hear the Word of God? Is that how you read the Word of God? Is that how, when you come here on Sunday and you sing and you pray and you listen to sermons, is that the way you approach it? That these are not the words of men, they're the Word of God, which is at work in my heart. Because that's how we are to receive it. And this word which was at work in them turned their lives upside down. 1 Thessalonians 1 speaks of their faith, hope, and love. How they became imitators of Paul as he imitated Christ. How they, though they were brand new Christians, barely knew anything about Jesus, received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they actually became examples to the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. More specifically, how they turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Paul would say of them with all confidence in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you, because the gospel came not only in word, 
That's what it did for those jealous Jews. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Can you say that about your understanding of God's Word? It's come to you in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. And here in Acts 17, we can see how that was manifest in their lives. Again, though they're brand new Christians, they joined with Paul and Silas in verse 4. They were identified with the church. They're not standing outside it saying, all that matters is me and Jesus. Oh, just hold to the universal church. No, they were identified with the local church. They were identified with those who the city authorities were trying to grab and haul before them and persecute. They were taking them in. They were protecting them. They were helping them to escape. That's what they were doing. They weren't just hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Because they had received it by God's grace in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We see similarities between them and the Bereans in verse 10. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so these Berean Jews were of better blood than the Thessalonian Jews, right? Is that what he's saying when they said they're noble? No, it means that they had a noble character, that they were noble-minded. They were willing to carefully consider the matter before ruling it out. In other words, they were open to reason, they were unbiased, and they showed integrity and earnestness in their desire to obey God in all things. They were noble specifically because they received the word with all eagerness. They were listening intently with their Bibles open to all that Paul and Silas proclaimed. Hope that's what you do when you gather here. Get your Bible open. You're wanting to receive. You're wanting to see. You're wanting to examine carefully. They were eager. They were ready and willing to embrace all that God had spoken. They were examining Scripture to see if these things were so. Like a jury that's carefully considering every detail before rendering a verdict, they tested and examined what Paul and Silas taught them against Scripture to see whether or not it was true. People will tell you things that are not true. You need to be discerning enough through God's Word to know truth from error. God's Word was their standard by which they measured every claim and every doctrine. And they did this daily. Theirs was a diligent, persistent, continual pursuit of truth over and above all else. And friends, as a result of that, we see that many of these Jews, not all of them, but many of them, along with many Gentiles of various backgrounds, believed. Friends, this is why we believe. It's not because the pastor says so. Because that's what mom and dad brought me up and they taught me to believe. It's not because, oh, we like these people, we want to be around them, or we see their kids and we want our kids to be like their kids, or, you know, we just want good moral relationships and so we're just trying to find a church where we can have that, you know, and, or, or we just want to perform our religious duty, give ourselves a little bit of fire insurance to make sure we don't go to hell when we die. No, we believe because of the truthfulness and authority of God's Word. We are convinced and persuaded by God's Word that this is true, and therefore it is binding for our lives. We study and examine God's Word because we want to obey, because we want God to be at the center of how we live in and how we view this world. This is why we know God's Word. We strive to know God's Word because we want to know God and we want to love Him faithfully and truly. 
Friends, this is why the Scripture is so much a part of our services. We get together, what do we do? We sing God's Word. We pray God's Word. Right? We listen to the preaching of God's Word. We read God's Word. We've got God's Word underneath the lyrics of our songs. How much more of it do you need? I once received a criticism about our services. You guys are really, really word-centered. I was like, what's, what's the problem with that? Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit works in power through God's Word. Through God's Word to transform our lives, to change it us, to turn our lives upside down. It is God's Word that renews our mind. It is God's Word that directs our wills. It is God's Word that opens our hearts. It is God's Word that fills our lives so that we might do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And friends, that happens as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, not when it's lacking, This is why expositional preaching is so important. You shouldn't just be taking my word for it. We work through the text of Scripture so that you can carefully examine with your Bibles open to see and to believe that this is the Word of God. I want you to see it for what it is. So friends, don't rush off from the Word of God to the rest of your lives. This is one of the biggest challenges for us today. Right? When we come to God's Word, we sit there, we look at it, we read it, and so often we treat it like it's something we got to check off the list. You know, just got my daily Bible reading done, just working on my plan, I got the little tick mark, so I did, I, I did my duty, and then I go on with the rest of my life. It's so easy for us to walk out of here eat lunch, and forget about it. And it's because we don't slow down enough. We don't approach God's Word prayerfully and expectantly. We don't dig in. We don't memorize. We don't meditate on God's Word so that it might dwell richly in our hearts. And when it's not dwelling richly in our our hearts, guess what happens? The cares of this world choke out the Word so that it does not bear fruit. This is why we need daily reminders, not just once a week or when we occasionally show up to church. This is why we read and we study and we pray in order to prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. Now, you don't have to be the smartest person or have gone to seminary in order to rightly divide and apply God's Word. But you do need to take time to study it diligently. Don't give up just because it's difficult, or because there are smart people with PhDs that happen to disagree on it. That's the thing about PhDs, we all know this, you take three PhDs, you put them in the room, you come out with 15 opinions. If you gave up every time one smart person disagreed with another smart person, you would never be able to learn anything about anything. But just because they're smart, or just because they have PhDs, or just because they've written books on the subject, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. No, you need to seek and to find the truth in God's Word so that you might not be a child tossed to and fro by every wind of false doctrine. And these non-seminary trained Bereans eagerly examined Scripture daily and they arrived at the truth. Friends, I wish that all we had to do was sleep next to our Bibles and it would just fill our heads. I mean, wouldn't that be great, right? Just, you know, wake up in the morning and suddenly you've got, you know, Job is memorized. You just quote it. That's not the way it works. The Word of God is more like a crock pot than a microwave. It's always dangerous to talk about food references, but I am, right? It's more like a crock pot than a microwave, right? Simmering instead of zapping. With a crock pot, you can smell it long before you can eat it. But in the end, it's a whole lot better 
than that cheap frozen dinner. You can't develop a relationship with someone that changes your life without spending time with that person. We read the Bible so that we can listen to our Father, right? We, we talk to our Father in prayer. We gather together with God's family as a church, and we participate in the family business as we go and we make disciples of all nations. That's what we're given to do. Friends, you need to be very careful of coming to God's Word only enough to be stirred, but not changed. Change takes unrushed time with God's Word. So we want to strive to take God's Word as God intended it to be, as a way of life. This is not God's answer book for all of life's problems. It does. This is a way of life. God's not going to tell you in this Bible the name of the person that you're to marry or where you're to take a job or what you're to do next. But when you understand the heart of God as He's revealed Himself through Scripture, your will and your ways are conformed to His so that you make choices that are in line with God's priorities. That's a way of life. Are you hungry and eager for God's Word or are you indifferent toward it? I mean, what's your posture when you come to the text of Scripture? I can look out over here, and you're telling me a lot by the posture that I see. Every Sunday, I see a lot of posture. What's your posture when you come to the Word of God? There has never been a revival in the history of mankind or the transformation of life in a single person's heart apart from a hunger for God's Word. The sudden desire to know God and to seek Him in His Word. There's, there's no genuine conversion. There's no salvation. There's no transformation. There's no growth to maturity in Christ apart from a hunger for God's Word. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And one of the surest signs of the Spirit's work in anyone's life is that they now have a hunger to know God's Word. And we see that clearly both in these believing Thessalonians and in these Bereans. Do you honestly think that your life is going to change just because you happen to show up a little bit late on a Sunday morning every once in a while? Do you honestly think that your life is going to change if we dim the lights we add some smoke and we you know, pump up the bass so that it thumps against your chest and you close your eyes and you raise your hands that your life is going to be transformed by that. You honestly think that just kind of just flippantly showing up is going to change anything about you. It's a good start. Come in the start. But no, transformation always comes as a result of a hunger for God's Word. And friends, the more hungry we are, the more we share it with others. And so now that we know what God's priority for us is when it comes to ministry, this consistent gospel witness, and we know what might lead someone to hear and yet feel, fail to receive, and what ultimately leads anyone to truly hear and receive, we need to ask questions of ourselves. Where am I? Where am I in this? Because again, Luke wrote this to Theophilus to say, look, this is true of people just like you. Just like you. Those who were faithful gospel witnesses, they're just like you. Those who heard the word but did not listen, they're just like you. And those who received the word because God had given them eyes to hear, they are just like you. And so, where are you? What needs to change in your life 
so that the word might turn your world upside down? Where do you want to be? Let's pursue this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. You, you tell us in Second Peter that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've shown us in this passage that, that the way the world is changed is through receiving your word for what it is. Not as the words of men, but the word of God that is at work in us who believe. And Lord, I pray that we would receive the word with all power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Lord, help us to see that that revival and renewal and cultural transformation doesn't start out there hypothetically. When those people get their acts together, it's meant to start with us who are right now hearing your word. Whether that be those who have walked with Christ for a long time or those who may be here and have, have never trusted in Christ for salvation. We see that your word is meant to change us. We see that it is the authority, that it is truth. Oh Lord, give us hearts to believe and to receive it for what it is. May we turn away from ourselves and for all, from all other idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for your Son with patience. It's in His name we pray. Amen.